You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our study by examining how we are intended to love, live, and learn from others in our church family with the series we are calling Life in the Family. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. There's a periodical called The Atlantic. Maybe some of you read it. I uh, I read it from time to time. I find that it gives me articles. It's certainly not a faith-based publication, but it is something that uh, gives me an idea of what's going on in our world and a way to process it. Three months ago today, to this day, there was an article that came out that was titled, The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stop Going to Church. Now, I'm sure you can imagine that that caught my eye. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm all in on that. Now, if you think back with me, I want you to think back with me 25 years. That was before 9-11 happened. That takes us all the way back to 1998. And I'd like to tell you, it doesn't feel like 1998 was 25 years ago. But in this article, Jake Metter, who actually is a, is a believer and is a writer, is detailing and chronicling several things about church. One of which is this, in the last 25 years, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church. That's 12% of the American population. 40 million have stopped going to church. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. 12% of the United States population has withdrawn from engagement or participation in in a church ministry. As he goes through that, he starts chronicling some statistics, things that have been statistically proven, such as this, that life or engagement in a faith community correlates to these things, better health, longer life, a higher financial generosity, and more stability for the family. Now, think with me. If those things are true, and in the last 25 years, 40 million Americans have stopped participating, then those benefits I just said, you would expect those things to decline. Now, because that is true, I will tell you that what we see in the, United, in the culture in the United States, rising rates of loneliness, rising rates of mental illness, and rising rates of alcohol and drug dependency. Any wonder? If your involvement and engagement would lead to more stability and more health, then the removal of it, we would expect that to decline. And that's exactly what we're seeing. It's through that that he comes back and Metter, not related to our Jeff Metter, but Metter who wrote the article draws us to this analysis where he writes this, contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Goes on to say this, such a system, that kind of system, leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. See where he's going? He concludes with this. Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that just doesn't add up. Now think with me about this. When we talk about Scripture, and we've been talking about all these one another passages uh, in this series, and we get to the point where today we're seeing these words. Is it possible that the church can thrive in the 21st century? Is it possible that maybe God just didn't understand what American life was going to be like in the 21st century? And he's asking too much of us. Or could it be The church looks so much like the world, we've lost our distinctiveness. 
And the world's looking at us and saying, what is there for me? Why in the world would I give up one of my couple of mornings a week and get up and get dressed and go fight the crowds and go fight uh, maybe with family, whoever, to go and be a part of that? I got no desire to do that. If we look around, does God have a purpose in the church in the 21st century? I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Whether or not you are uh, using a a physical copy of Scripture or uh, one of our digital uh, tools that are available, turn with me to Galatians 5. I think we're going to see today is that maybe the church hasn't been living and functioning in the way that God would call our church to live and function. Capital C Church. We see it in our local church, lowercase c, but capital C Church, the church. And Paul is going to confront us with some things today that I think maybe we need to hear. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 13. Paul writes this, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another... Watch out, you're not consumed by one another. Strong words for where he begins. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. We're writing to believers in this, brothers and sisters. We're not immune to this. As we step into this passage this morning, if you know Christ, this passage is written to you and to me. And so as we start walking through it, let's be really clear. Paul has been working through a journey for us in this book of Galatians. And if you want to go back, we preached this uh, as a sermon series not long ago, and you can go watch that uh, on our Vimeo page or listen to it on our podcast. But as a refresher, earlier in this chapter, Paul writes this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why is that significant? Because of this, as we have been set free for what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, but know this, for some bizarre reason, we keep drifting back to the yoke of slavery. We've been set free from it, but there is a pull like a bad front end alignment on your car that you take your hands off the wheel and it will lead you into the ditch. There is something about it that feels whatever, more comfortable that we can say, put me under that yoke of slavery. I'm comfortable there. The freedom is too much. But his words are really strong. Stand firm. Stand firm. It's going to take a commitment that we not drift back into that yoke of slavery. What kind of things is he talking about? Well, he's already made this statement in Galatians chapter 3. Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, that you're now being perfected by the flesh? It took a spiritual birth for us to move into the family of God. It required the spiritual work for us to move into the family of God. Why is it that we could drift back into the idea is that our spiritual life is a behavioral issue? That we could say, you know what, if I just do this, if I just do that, if I just do this, if I just do this, if I get involved in more studies, if I memorize more passages, if I help more people and hold the doors open more, then all of a sudden my life would be figured out. Paul's saying, no, it's a spiritual life. This is not behavioralism. 
It requires a spiritual work. The idea that we would be moved by the Spirit to become more of the men and women that God calls us to be. Because it was in Galatians 4 where he said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So we might receive adoption as sons. You see, in this spiritual reality that we're living in, it took, the, it took Jesus Christ coming on the cross and paying for our sins and suffering a death. That's how we got redeemed out of that slavery. And when we got redeemed out of that slavery, based on what he accomplished, all of a sudden we became sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we got brought into his family at that level. Paul's argument is this. We couldn't accomplish coming into his family apart from the work of the Lord and what he redeemed us on that cross for. And could we be so foolish and delusional as to think that once we get brought into the family, that now all of a sudden we have to be behavioral in the way we go about living our life? He's got a lot of strong words for us here because he brings us back to this passage. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. So live in that freedom and what that's going to look like. Dallas Willard offers us something that he calls the gospels of sin management in a critique of what is being seen in churches. So this is not something, the word gospel is kind of a funny term because when you translate gospel, it means good news. So the gospel of sin management is not good news at all. But I think he captures the heart of churches, which is so often what we see. I think this is why 40 million people have left churches in the last 25 years. He writes this, a saying among management experts today is, your system is perfectly designed to yield the results you're getting. What's your system? I think Willard would say, you know what? Look at the fruit that you're producing. And the fruit that you're producing will, will show us what the system is. If you have an orange tree producing oranges, then you know that you did not plant an apple tree. The system will create the results that we see. Willard goes on to say this, this is a profound though painful truth that must be respected by all who have an interest in Christian spiritual formation, whether for themselves as individuals or for groups or institutions. Why? Because it's forcing us to look at what is the fruit in my life and your life, and is it consistent with the gospel? Because according to Willard, the system that we have is producing fruit. Is it the fruit we want? It forces us to look at what we're, who we're becoming. So it goes on to say this. We who profess Christianity will believe what is constantly presented to us as gospel. If gospels of sin management are preached, they are what Christians will believe. If you come in to this place and you hear us promoting, it's all about behaviors. It's all about behavior. You need to manage your sin. You need to do less of this. You need to do more of that. You got to get rid of this in your life and you need to focus on this. And I ought to see this in your life then guess what we're going to produce? We're going to produce people that are leaving this campus and going into the world and they're telling people, hey, you need to get your act together. You need to clean up your act before you come to church because it's all about this good news of sin management. Now, can you see why 40 million people would leave a church if all we're trying to say is be better, act better? See, that's not an appealing message and it certainly isn't good news. His conclusion is this. And those in the wider world, when we leave this campus, they're going to reject that sin management gospel that we carry out there. And they're going to think they've rejected Jesus Christ when they haven't heard the good news yet. They haven't heard that there's a God in heaven who loves them and wants to have a relationship with them, who's done everything possible. See, that's the good news of the gospel. 
that were separated from God and we couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't manage our own sin. We couldn't get our act together. We weren't that away. If we could have gotten our act together, then we didn't need a savior. The problem was on our shoulders. Figure it out. Instead, the gospel is we couldn't get it together. God knew we couldn't get it together. So he sent his son to take on flesh and walk on this earth and live the life we couldn't live. He was totally righteous. He had no sin to manage. He was righteous and he went to the cross and he paid the penalty of sin, which is death. And he walked out of the grave three days later and he offers us life. How? By offering us his righteousness. That's the good news that the world's looking for. And when we're predicting or pushing out people into the world and we're telling them to go tell the world, be better, that's a gospel of sin management and that's no gospel at all. So when we come back to this passage, he wants to offer us something real. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're here, if you're watching online and you look around and say, all I know is about trying to be better and I know that I can't, then we'd love for you to recognize that there's a Savior who loves you and has done everything possible to have a relationship with you. Please grab one of our leadership team. We would love to visit with you about this God who loves you and wants to have a relationship. And there is good news. Sin management isn't it. It's the fact that there's this God in heaven who wants to have a relationship with you. You're called to freedom, brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do we do with that? What does that freedom create in us? What's the impact of that? Next sentence, only. He's about to qualify it. He's about to tell us what he means by it. First, he's going to tell us what we don't do, and then he's going to tell us what we are going to do, okay? Only. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Only. Don't use that freedom to go feed the flesh. Flesh sometimes means the human body. Here is talking about the sin nature. The idea that you and I would look up and say, you know what? If I've been set free from my sin based on who God is and what he accomplished on the cross, and if he really means it, does it mean I can just go into any self-indulgence that I want? Does it mean that I can become a hedonist and I just feed whatever desire I have? Well, certainly not. That's not what he's arguing. Matter of fact, as he goes on through that, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That word opportunity talks about a springboard into sin. It actually would have been used of a forward military base. When you're going into a hostile action, that we got a forward military base that's going to help prepare you and propel you into this battle is that you and I wouldn't let the sinful side that is there within us, the one that has lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh and struggles with the pride of life, is that we don't give it a forward base camp to jump off of into sin because we were created for more than that. At no point in the Christian life can we say, you know what, because God has saved me, I ought to just cut loose and pursue whatever hedonistic desire I have. Matter of fact, Paul in Romans argues about it this way. If the more I struggle with sin, the greater God's grace is, then as I sin, God's grace is shown to be even bigger. Should I sin more? And Paul argues the strongest rebuttal against that when he says, may it never be. We don't abuse the grace of God and we don't allow our flesh to have a springboard into sin. It wasn't intended for that. We never get to say, you know what? 
I've been going through a hard time. I'm, I know that I'm free, so I'm just going to cut loose tonight. I'm going to pursue whatever I want to pursue, whatever lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or the pride of life wants to propel me to. I'm just going to go all in on that. Well, Paul recognizes that it just creates another kind of slavery. Now we're going to become enslaved to the flesh. and We've been set free. There's a new way for us to live. How so? Look at what he says. But through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. That word love is the word agape. You may be familiar with it. Agape. It speaks of an unconditional love. It's not a response kind of love. It's not that you do something for me, therefore I do something back for you. No, agape love is an unconditional choice that you and I make that says, I choose to be selfless, I choose to be sacrificial, and I will do this for you. By the way, it's the word that is always used to describe God's love for you and for me. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not self-seeking, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love hopes all things, bears all things. If you're familiar with that passage, that's always agape love. So catch this. Our calling is in our freedom that through agape love, the same love that God used to draw you to himself, he wants to use you to go into somebody else's life. Now, I'm going to say that again. Is that God will love the people around you through you as you do what? Well, there's the word as we serve him. The cure for our slavery to sin is that we love well. Because we can't be selfish if we're loving well. It's not, it's not possible for that to happen. Now, when we find out what this is, all of a sudden, but through love, we're going to serve one another. We're going to learn how to serve one another. Now, if you look at just the word, it certainly has a concrete sense of it where you would say it's a, a slave or a servant. But there's a metaphorical way that it appears in Scripture, which is that we would perform services of kindness and Christian love. That through love, within our freedom, that through love, I'm going to step into another person's life. You who know Christ are going to step into another person's life and perform services of kindness and Christian love. Now, it's a verb. It's something that we're called to do. Well, where do I start? Well, if you look back at what we've covered so far in the series is we can start serving people by loving people. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Be the person that steps into another person's life and offers them a relationship that is volitional on your part, that is selfless and sacrificial, and is very intentional. Be patient with them. Be kind with them. Don't keep records of their wrongs. Well, that's one way we start serving people. Be devoted to them. Hey, I'm all in. I will not walk away from you. I am all in on you. Honor them. You know what? You matter. Your experiences matter. The way you think matters. The way you feel matters. I care about you because you matter to the Lord. And the Lord wants to use me in your life for his purposes. That matters. Bearing with. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We can welcome different ways of thinking. We can accept different ways of thinking. We bear with those personality traits The people that maybe their personality kind of rubs you the wrong way, they didn't wrong you. So how do we bear with somebody that thinks differently and lives differently than we do? We can encourage somebody by stepping into their life and putting courage inside of them where they lack courage. Edifying, we build people up. 
Those are all ways we can start serving. You heard Caleb talk about the fact that we've got a couple of ways coming up. We had people last week in our fall festival. We had people stay and help us put this room back together, 890 chairs. We had folks stay and help us put this room back together and clean up after uh, the chaos of Wednesday night. We're grateful for that. They were serving. We got opportunities to do the Thanksgiving meal. You got opportunities to do Operation Christmas Child. And in doing so, you will serve our, commun- our church family. You will serve our community. You will serve around the world as those shoeboxes go out around the world. You say, Lance, is there anything at the church? Oh, yeah, there's a QR code in your bulletin. We got lots of opportunities to serve. How would I serve? Well, through, in your freedom, through love, is that you would step in and have the opportunity to show kindness and Christian love on behalf of another person. What an incredible gift we have to be able to do that. Living freely to serve others. Look at where it goes from there. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's kind of a big statement, right? You can fulfill the whole law in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a big statement. All of this? He says, yeah, all of this. If you've got a little bookmark in your Bible, I'd Put it here in this passage because we're about to turn over to Luke chapter 10. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Is it possible that you can fulfill all of the law in that one statement? It's a big statement. Luke chapter 10. As we come here, recognize this. Jesus is in a conversation And somebody feels very good about themselves and feel like they have Jesus in a tough spot, like they've caught him in a loophole. They're going to expose him as a fraud. And anytime we go to Jesus with that kind of thinking, we're going to be in trouble. And we're going to see that played out here in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what's written in the law? How do you read the law? Now, it's a lawyer that he's talking to, right? Hey, lawyer, you know the law. Look back at the Mosaic law and you answer your own question. He doesn't give him the answer. He just says, hey, if you know the law, what does the law say? The young lawyer said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Did he answer correctly? Well, we would expect a lawyer to have studied the law. He would know, right? He would know Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Well, he said that. That's included in his answer. That lawyer would know Leviticus 19. You shouldn't take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. I have the authority to say that. I'm the Lord. So we look back. Okay. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Now, the lawyer feel like, okay, I got him right where I want him. He's in trouble. Desiring to justify himself, 
That's where we know this is going sideways. He's not trying to learn. He's not being submissive. He's not being humble. He's not coming from, he doesn't recognize how ignorant he is. He's now saying, hey, I'm doing all I need to do. I've got it covered. My bases are covered. Hey, Jesus, so, so who is my neighbor? So there's our question. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? If I've got to do this, who is my neighbor? Because if I've got to love my neighbor as myself, it seems like the whole thing hinges on this. Now, granted, you know what he didn't say? Is he loving the Lord with all of his heart, soul, and strength? So he just bypasses, that's a given, right? So it really is going to come down to this. Who exactly is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. Jesus starts a parable. You may know it. It's called the Good Samaritan. Matter of fact, it's become so popularized in the world is that we in legal systems all across our United States have good Samaritan laws about if you stop and help somebody who's injured, what what, uh, liabilities do you carry? So our world recognizes the truth of this parable. Let's pick up the parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now let's stop a second. Jerusalem is up high in the mountains. Jericho is about 17 miles away. It would be a 3,000-foot descent from Jerusalem down into Jericho. It's wilderness. It's rough. The roads are windy as you would go down. And it's going to be a place where criminals would hide because people are exposed in long stretches. They would be alone, and they've got a lot of opportunities to hurt somebody, okay? So this person starts traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The clothes were valuable. It's assumed that he tried to fight back, and that's why he was beaten so badly. It was one man against a group of robbers. They want something he has. He decides to fight back. He pays the price for it. He's a victim of a violent crime, and there he is on the road. Now, if you think with me about what maybe that would be like, he's laying there, he's unclothed, he's facing the elements of the day and whatever weather is going on, he's badly injured and exposed. And you can imagine that if that was you or me, we'd be laying there and say, dear Lord, please help somebody come by who can render aid. I need some help. Otherwise, I won't make it out of here. God, just send somebody that can help me. All right, so here we go. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down the road when he saw him pass by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, I want you to think with me, this Jewish person traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, beaten, bruised, laying, exposed on the side of the road, Lord, please send somebody to help me. And then he looks up and sees a priest. Thank you, Lord. My prayers have been answered. And up comes the priest. And he keeps walking. Now, it's interesting. We have no motivation. We have no excuse as to why he kept walking. And I think it's clear why. Because there is no caveat to loving your neighbor as yourself. Unless you're in a hurry unless it's inconvenienced, unless it's going to be inexpensive, unless you don't like the person, unless it's a Samaritan, there's no excuse. So the reason doesn't matter. This lawyer would know, the priest in the story would know, he's just violated the law. We don't have a reason. Reason doesn't matter because there's no exception to loving your neighbor as yourself. 
And so there goes the priest. And as he walks by, gets on the other side, and keeps walking. The Levites would have assisted the priest. So the priest walks by, and then you have a Levite who would be somebody who would assist the priest. The priest would have been the mentor. The priest would have been the one setting the pace. The priest most certainly would have known Deuteronomy 6, would have most certainly known Leviticus. He could have answered the questions that the lawyer asked, answered, but the priest just kept going. And then the Levite, the one who would serve the priest, he follows the same behavioral lead of the priest. No, 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 no. Okay, I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to get involved in that. For whatever reason, we don't know doesn't matter. There's no exception to loving your neighbor as yourself. They clearly have been callous. They certainly have not engaged. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, and you use an ugly phrase here because it's the way they would have used it. A Samaritan was a half-breed, half Jew, half Gentile. And in that in-between land, the Gentiles rejected them because they were half Jewish. The Jewish people rejected them because they were half Gentile. This was an unloved, people group. Nobody was for them. Racism goes back to here for sure. The Samaritan, this one that the lawyer who's answering the questions, the one Jesus is talking to, would have repudiated the Samaritan. I'm sure he's thinking, well, the priest probably was in a hurry. The Levite, well, of course, he was in a hurry. Oh, Samaritan, there's no way the Samaritan does anything. They're worthless. Samaritans are just worthless. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this victim was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Oh, that's different. Priest didn't. Levi didn't. He went to him and bound up his wound, pouring on oil and wine. He went to him, pouring on oil and wine. The oil would have soothed. The wine would have been an antiseptic to his wounds. But he bandaged him up. And I think it's so significant because you can't bandage a person on the, on the ground while you're standing. No, see, that person's going to have to get down on their knees, and they're going to have to get down there and help them and bandage and take that oil and take that wine and care for that person. They're going to end up with the blood of that victim all over them. There's no way not to. They're taking care of that person. Because when we start serving people, we can't serve people from a distance and remain aloof and not engaged. We're going to have to get down there with them if we're going to do it. And that's exactly what the Samaritan did. He saw him. He had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wound, pouring on the oil and the wine. Then he set him on his own animal. Well, he's traveling with an animal. It's 17 miles. And you recognize this victim that's laying on the ground, half dead. He can't walk. Okay, buddy, get it up. Look, I bandaged you up. You're good to go. Look, use this as a walking pole and just get going. Sometimes our service says, you know what? Let me get off of my animal and put you on it because you can't go without this animal. Fully engaged. He's cared for his wounds. He's cared for his immediate needs. And look at where he goes next. In the next, uh, excuse me, in the next day, he took two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, say, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Two denarii. It was believed that the cost of one day of living was one-twelfth of a denarii. Here's two. That's 24 days. He looks at the innkeeper and says, you know what? I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not paying for. I don't know how long it's going to take, 
but here's 24 days worth of money for your care of him. Take care of him. And by the way, I'm going to pass back by here. And if it's cost more than the 24 days, if you've had your expenses go beyond that, then I'll settle up that tab when I get back. Now, if you put all that together, we get to the point where Jesus is going to ask a question back. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Okay, lawyer, you're putting me to a test. You're saying, well, who's my neighbor? I think, based on who he was, he would have said, well, the priest is his neighbor. But he walked by. Oh, the Levite, that's his neighbor. No, he walked by. Can you imagine what he felt when he said, had to say the Samaritan? Well, I'll tell you what he felt. Because he couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. I'm not going to give any credit to Samaritans because they're filthy dogs. I hate them. They get no credit. I will acknowledge that the one who showed mercy, that was the neighbor. That was who was the neighbor. And look at what Jesus says. You go and do likewise. See, that, that lawyer that thought he had Jesus trapped, well, who's my neighbor? All of a sudden, knowing the law is not sufficient. Doing the law requires that you know the law, and then you go and act upon it, which is where the lawyer was deficient. It wasn't a problem with his lack of knowledge. He had the knowledge. What he wasn't doing was acting upon the knowledge. He wasn't moving out in compassion. By the way, neither was the priest. Neither was the Levite. They all knew the law. But we find ourselves in this situation where the Samaritan, the one who you would not have thought could be the good neighbor, is the good neighbor. And what happens in that moment, we go all the way through that story, and the one who thought he could put Jesus to the test and win the argument and expose Jesus ends up having his question turned around. His question was what? Who is my neighbor? And by the end of the story, you know what the question is? Exactly who isn't your neighbor? Who is beyond caring for them on the side of the road? Who is beyond? Who doesn't count? Who's not worthy of us stopping to care for them? Because when we get to the end of the story, the words are, you go and do likewise. Turn with me, if you would, back to Galatians. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. It's because if we love our neighbor as ourself, then that's going to have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're going to have to know God. We're going to have to love God. We're going to have to become a, uh, an agent for him in this world. And all of a sudden, we can love our neighbors as ourselves. And so that's why Paul can write this statement. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. We can step into that, and we get an opportunity to step into that. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. You see, part of this journey of learning how to love and serve one another is, is just this. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have the same basis of our salvation. We all worship the same God. We are all resourced by the same God. And ultimately, we are all headed to the same place with God. We're not opponents. We're not competitors. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And when we see ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're in need, I have the chance to, through love, pick you up, bandage your wounds, put you on my animal and say, hey, let's just keep going. Come on, God's ahead. He's got a calling on our life. Let's just keep going. It's when they're a competitor that you walk by and like, I got no time for you. As if God's limited in his resources. It says, you know what? I can't stop for this person because I got to get mine. I'm in too big of a hurry. I've got a lot. I got big things to do. I'm a big, important person. The big, important people didn't stop. The Samaritan, the one that nobody valued, that's the person who stops. But when he comes here and says, you know what the problem can be with churches? Is you can bite and devour one another. Because that freedom that we can use to serve others out of love, we also can use to serve our own flesh. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And the moment that we do that, you're no longer my brother and sister in Christ. You're my opponent. You're my competitor. And I will bite you and devour you at such a level to destroy you. See, it begins with the faulty understanding of who God is, who we are, and what he's called us to. It certainly isn't, that certainly doesn't communicate love. And if you say, we've been covering all these one another, do this, do this, honor one another, build up one another, encourage one another. There's a whole list of things in Scripture that says, quit doing these things to one another. They're the destructive one another's. Quit lusting for one another, where I just want to use you for my own selfish purposes. Quit judging one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all faulty. We're all struggling in this world. Let's walk together. Quit depriving one another. Quit biting, devouring, and destroying one another. Quit provoking one another, envying one another. We all have the same blessings in the Lord that the others do. We don't need to envy them unless we've got some misunderstanding judgment of how we make it through this world. Quit lying to one another. Quit hating, slandering, and grumbling against one another. Because these things are destructive. And it's impossible for us to, through love, do any of those things. Through love, we're called to serve one another. And all of a sudden, we can say, okay, so how in the world am I going to do that? Lance, you said that it's not about sin management, and I feel like you just told me I need to go find places to serve. We've missed a step. The step is this. How in the world could we possibly do that? Look with me at Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we've been set free, if we've been set free and we have this freedom but we don't use it for the flesh. We use it that through love we might serve another. Here's the battle. Walk in the spirit and we can't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other. These two things are always doing battle in my soul and in your soul. They're always there. Which one am I going to live out of? Am I going to live out of the flesh? Am I going to live out of the spirit? How am I going to do it? Well, he's going to tell us what it's going to look like. And there's some really ugly words in this passage. But look at what he says. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. The works of the flesh are evident. There is nobody that is going to see these behaviors and think, oh, that guy or that girl is really close with Jesus. It's going to be really evident when we read these words. And he's going to highlight four areas of sin, sexual sin, religious sin, relational sin, and decadent sins. Listen to this list. Nobody would confuse this as fruit of the Spirit. Okay, verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, 
jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you. I warned you before. He said, I can't even give you the whole list because you get the picture. See how ugly those words are? That's how we're going to know. That's how we're going to know if you're manifesting or pursuing the flesh. It'll be really clear. Everybody will know. It doesn't have to be that way because all of a sudden in verse 22, but here's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Four types of sin, sexual, religious, relational, and decadent. That's when we, we honor the flesh. The moment we start walking with the Spirit, there's a transformation. Did you catch the transformation? Look back at that list. There are new habits of our mind. There's a new capacity to reach out and care for others. And there's a general change in our conduct. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we've been set free. Not to be wheels off, to be unguided, to just do whatever. We've been set free from the rigors of the law that we may go love and care for people the way God loves and cares for them. The call is that we would learn how to serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because what is real is there are 40 million people in the last 25 years that have drifted away at church. And I may be going out on a limb here, but I don't think it's because they felt like they were being over-served and cared for. I think it was that they probably looked around and said, this place doesn't look any different than where I am at work or anywhere else Monday to Saturday. So I'm just going to drift away. I think that's what led Brandon Manning to write this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and they walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Because it's the priest and the Levite that kept walking. And I don't know how many times they uttered God's name and they called on people to Messiah and how many times they quoted Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But I bet you they knew it. And I bet you they said it a lot. And the problem was, why didn't they honor Jesus with their lifestyle? Because the call is, is people who've been transformed by the fruit of the Spirit, the way that we would control ourselves, the ways that we would engage others, the new habits of our mind, would yield itself in serving others, not out of duty, out of the gift and the joy of having been set free, of having been invited into the family of God so that we get the privilege of being used by God for his purposes, not with our competitors and opponents, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What a joy. Because we don't have to stay on this path. We've been set free. We could do it different. We could be the people God calls us to be. We could be the church God calls us to be. And the moment that happens, man, there's going to be revivals in this world because the world longs to be loved and they long to be served and we have the privilege and the calling to do it. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast, published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.